Hello, Jack. I changed my mind. They said you might be out here. Shh. Give me your hand. Now close your eyes. Go on. Now step up. Now hold on to the MP3 player. Keep your eyes closed. Don't peek. I'm not. Click on the file name. Hold on. Hold on. Keep your eyes closed. Do you trust me? I trust you. All right. Open your eyes. I'm podcasting, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> All hands, look out! Jodcast, get ahead! The Jodcast. Leaping into the new year. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, Nick Rattenbury, and Roy Smiths. The Jodcast. February issue. Hello and welcome to the February 2008 issue of the Jodcast. As ever, we've got Nick and Stuart in our Manchester studios. Hi guys. Hi Dave. Hello Dave. Hello everyone. And we have, as ever, a jam-packed show for you this month. So, in the show, we find out all about gravitational lensing from Dr. Neil Jackson. Roy Smits talks to astronomers at the recent Manchester Microlensing Conference... And we find out what you can see in the night sky during February with Ian Morrison. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. Huge gas cloud on a collision course with the Milky Way. Messenger takes the first close-ups of Mercury in more than 30 years. And thin galaxies harbour big secrets. A giant cloud of gas is heading straight for a collision with the Milky Way, announced a group of astronomers at the 211th meeting of the American Astronomical Society in January. The cloud, known as Smith's Cloud, after the astronomer who discovered it in 1963, is made mainly of hydrogen gas, enough to make about one million sun-like stars. It is 11,000 light-years long, 2,500 light-years wide, and only 8,000 light-years from the disk of our galaxy. Previous observations of the cloud did not show whether it was travelling towards the galaxy or whether it was a cloud of gas being blown out of the disk. Now, observations using the Green Bank Telescope in America show that it is moving rapidly towards our galaxy at more than 240 kilometres per second, at an angle of about 45 degrees. On the sky, Smith's cloud is about 15 degrees long, about 30 times the width of the full moon, but contains no stars and is not visible in ordinary light. The sensitive observations required 40,000 individual pointings of the 100-metre telescope to cover the entire cloud. Felix Lockman, who led the team, suggests that the most likely explanation for the cloud is that it is either something left over from the formation of the Milky Way, or gas stripped from a neighbouring galaxy. There is evidence that the outer edges of the cloud are already starting to interact with the Milky Way, but when the core of the cloud hits the disk of the galaxy in about 40 million years, it could trigger a huge burst of star formation. NASA spacecraft Messenger passed planet Mercury at a distance of just 200 kilometres during January. The flyby took place on the 14th of January, and was the first of three to be made by the probe as it prepares to enter into orbit around the solar system's smallest planet in 2011. It is now halfway through what will be a seven-year tour of the inner solar system. The last spacecraft to view Mercury up close was Mariner 10 in 1975. The flyby was designed to obtain the first detailed view of the hemisphere of the planet that was not seen by Mariner 10, make the first measurements of the elemental composition of Mercury's surface, 
use a laser altimeter to study the shape and topography of the planet, and take gravity measurements to try and improve the current understanding of Mercury's internal structure. All of the electronics and observational instruments are protected behind a shield that allows them to operate at room temperature, despite the extremely harsh environment. During the flyby, these instruments were expected to gather data over a period of 55 hours, collecting over 1,000 images of the planet. It is well known that galaxies come in many shapes and sizes. Our galaxy is a flat spiral with a reasonably large central bulge, at the centre of which sits a supermassive black hole. At the moment, this black hole is quiet, but some black holes in other galaxies are much more active, devouring gas and stars at a huge rate. These black holes are many millions of times more massive than our Sun, and usually weigh about 0.2% of the mass within the bulge of their host galaxy. Astronomers reason that the formation and growth of a black hole and the surrounding bulge are connected because of this link. Now, using data from the Spitzer Space Telescope, a team of astronomers has found evidence for black holes in an unlikely place, the core of a thin, almost bulgeless galaxy. A spectrum of the flat spiral galaxy NGC 3621 in the constellation of Hydra shows the presence of highly ionised neon, a signature of the large amounts of energy present around a black hole. The results challenge current theories, which hold that supermassive black holes require the large central bulges that poke out from many spiral galaxies to form and grow. NGC 3621 is the second disk galaxy without any bulge found to harbour a supermassive black hole. The first, found in 2003, is NGC 4395. Astronomers have also used Spitzer to find six other large black holes in thin spirals, with only minimal bulges. Together, these findings indicate that, for a galaxy, having a large bulge is not a necessary condition for growing a supermassive black hole. And finally, in November, the UK Science and Technology Facilities Council, or STFC, announced the decision to withdraw from funding the International Gemini Project, two 8-metre optical and infrared telescopes situated in Chile and Hawaii. A proposal was put forward to the Gemini Board, which would reduce the funding provided by STFC, but still allow UK astronomers access to Gemini North on Hawaii, retaining access to the only such large facility in the Northern Hemisphere available to the UK astronomical community. This proposal was rejected by the Board of Gemini, resulting in the withdrawal of the UK from the collaboration entirely. This turned out to be part of a much bigger issue. Despite an overall budget increase over the next few years, increased costs for the UK subscriptions to projects such as the European Space Agency, ESO and the Particle Physics Laboratory CERN, combined with overall increased outgoings, have left STFC with a budget shortfall of £80 million over the next three years. STFC not only takes care of subscriptions to major research facilities, but funds a large proportion of the research undertaken at university physics departments across the country. As well as pulling out of Gemini in order to save enough to cover the shortfall, STFC will also reduce grants to physics departments by 25% and reduce staff at several large research facilities around the country. Recently, John Denham, Secretary of State for the Department of Innovation, Universities and Skills, has initiated a review of the state of physics in the UK, which will look into physics funding as well as other issues. The review, led by Professor Bill Wakeham, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Southampton, will report towards the end of 2008, but is unlikely to have any impact on the current problem. Thanks, Megan. Now, as Megan mentioned there, one of the reasons why many astronomers and particle physicists are concerned about the funding situation is that many postdoctoral researchers, that's people like Megan, Nick and Stuart, and many projects within universities are funded by the STFC. The STFC also fund outreach projects such as the Jodcast. Now, in a letter to Stuart, the Secretary of State for Science and Innovation, Mr Ian Pearson, has said, 
STFC's science budget allocation will increase by 13.6% by the end of the comprehensive spending review period, which is 2010-2011, compared with its allocation in this financial year, 2007-2008. He continues, STFC has received a budget settlement that involves an increase in its funding over the comprehensive spending review period, but which, as a result of the strategic priorities that STFC has given to various areas of work, will result in certain restructuring and operational changes. STFC will work to minimize the impact of these changes on stakeholders with due regard to STEM skills during this period of transition. The STFC says that the Department for Innovation, Universities and Skills was aware of the impact on UK astronomy that the current funding settlement would lead to, given the rising costs that STFC has to bear. This is a situation that is developing, so we'll keep you informed on future Jodcasts. But now let's move on to more cheerful correspondence. So, here's your feedback from the past two weeks. Stuart. Yeah, we've had five reviews on iTunes. We had Steve Edwards from Welshpool in the UK and MF96, also from the UK, who both say that we've reignited or revitalised their fascination for astronomy, which is always good. Mm. Rob Parry in the UK also says that he's just found us, but thinks that we're fresh, occasionally funny, but always interesting. And a US radio buff with the call sign K140YQ, I think, although iTunes font choice doesn't make it very easy to read that. Um, he, <laughs> he likes our in-depth interviews, as does appropriately named US iTunes user NGC7000. I say appropriately named because NGC7000 is the North American nebula. Oh, very good. <laughs> nice touch. So, Dave, you have the emails. Yes, well, Brian Martin wrote to tell us that he finds the interviews rewarding, but sometimes finds the banter a little bit irritating. Banter? Yeah, banter, yes, afraid so. Well, he also had trouble downloading the January issue, and we hope that the upgrading of the Jodcast server should solve that problem. Now, Rodri Davis wrote to tell us that he caught our very own Ian Morrison giving a lecture on the use of computers in astronomy and demonstrated the beams of pulsars using a laser pointer. Sue Peters of the Orpington Astronomical Society says that she is pleased that our funding is to continue this year in the midst of what she calls the current financial disaster for physics and astronomy. We also have an email from Brian McCormack of Bunbury in Western Australia and has been downloading us since the first episode. Nick Whitehead of Akuri, apologies for the pronunciation, in Iceland, found us through his Nebeds tag. We have received three postcards from Carolina Ferrin, who is an artist and amateur astronomer in Arkansas, USA, and they are absolutely fantastic. They are homemade postcards showing some of the major northern constellations. So we've got one here, Ursa Manus, Cephas, and Cassiopeia, one showing the position of Comet P. Holmes, and Draco and Ursa Minor. They're fantastic. And also, the neat thing you can do with these postcards that Carolina has made is you hold them up to the light, and you can see that she's put in Various little pinpricks showing the positions of other stars. That's really fantastic. And also, also we've got, they are stamped. One with a stamp showing the Aurora Australis and two others stamped with Yoda. That's all class. So thank you very, very much indeed to Carolina for that. They're fantastic. Do please keep them coming. And everybody, please send us your feedback via postcard, email, pigeon post, whatever. And of course, you can also um, put something up on the Facebook wall. We have a group on the on Facebook. We currently have 72 members. So if you want to join and show that you are a Jodcast listener, then feel free. And so, on to the interviews for this month. Our first one is from the University of Manchester and Jodrell Bank 
Centre for Astrophysics' own Dr. Neil Jackson. And he's here talking to Roy Smits about his work in gravitational lensing. With me is Dr. Neil Jackson from Manchester University, and he's a member of the Gravitational Lensing Group. Neil, can you explain to us what gravitational lenses are? Well, basically, a gravitational lens system is a system where you have two objects in the distant universe which are nearly coincident along a line of sight. And what happens in that case is that the more distant object obviously emits light and radio waves, and those are bent by the action of the gravitational field of the object that's closer to us. So typically we would have a quasar at a very high redshift, and we would have a galaxy at a much lower redshift along the line of sight, and the light from the distant object would be bent by the action of the gravitational field. This works similar to an actual optical lens? It works very similar to an actual optical lens, but it doesn't produce nice images, nice focused images, the way that normal optical lens lenses do. What it tends to produce is it tends to produce multiple images of the background source and in the case where the alignment is very good you can sometimes get uh, what's known as an Einstein ring which is a ring image rather than just multiple images of the background source. You mentioned Einstein ring obviously named after the famous physicist. Has he contributed to the idea of gravitational lensing? Yes, um, quite a lot of people uh, over the last hundred years have thought about gravitational lensing. Einstein was actually not convinced that it was a real prospect that this, that this effect would be observed, although it was, in fact, the first observational evidence for general relativity actually came from Eddington's solar eclipse expedition, where the gravitational bending of light of a, of a star around the sun was observed. Various people during the 20th century, notably Zwicky, came up with the idea that gravitational lensing could be observed around distant galaxies. Um, Zwicky was ahead of his time in many ways, and this was one of them. And it was only about 40 years after Zwicky's prediction that the first gravitational lens was actually discovered in terms of uh, lensing by a, a galaxy. So with gravitational lenses, you can study quasars, uh, which I believe are the active nuclei of distant galaxies. Why would gravitational lenses be useful to observe these objects? Well, there's a number of reasons for gravitational lensing being very, being very useful. One reason is that as well as producing multiple images and producing distorted images of background objects, they also magnify background objects. And that means that you can study objects which would be otherwise too faint for, for, for you to see. For example, for several years, the highest redshift galaxy known was one which was magnified and gravitationally lensed by the action of a distant cluster. Otherwise, without that magnification, it wouldn't have been seen. So that's one reason. The other reason is that gravitational lensing is sensitive only to the mass of the lensing galaxy. And that's quite nice because it doesn't care whether the mass is ordinary baryonic matter or whether it's dark matter. So it responds to, to the total mass field. So hopefully by studying gravitational lensing, we can obtain some sort of information about the whole of the matter of the lensing galaxy, not just the light matter that we can see. So you observe the lens itself as well by studying gravitational lensing? Yes, that's right. It's a sort of inverse problem. We look at the images of the background object and then we try to work out from that 
the mass profile, the mass distribution of the foreground galaxy. Uh, you mentioned dark matter, uh, it's a very familiar term, but can you briefly describe what dark matter is? Dark matter is a form of matter which is thought to uh, make up something like 80% or so of the, of the total matter. It's not in a baryonic form, that, that, that is, it's, it's not your standard matter made up of protons, neutrons, electrons, all the rest of it, but its presence is inferred from a number of uh, observations independently of gravitational lensing. For example, otherwise, if you don't invoke any sort of dark matter, it's impossible to explain the rotation curves of galaxies, that is, the motion in the outer parts of galaxies is very difficult to explain without invoking dark matter. And so there's a number of lines of reasoning which, which lead one to the conclusion that um, dark matter must be, must be present. So you can actually observe dark matter using gravitational lenses? Yes, in theory. In practice, it turns out to be quite difficult to do in the cases of galaxy lensing. The reason for that is that there are these irritating baryons, so there are all these irritating uh, protons, neutrons and electrons that make up the things that we know about, and baryons tend to collect at the centres of galaxies. And the region of the galaxy which gravitational lensing probes is the region where the baryons start to become dominant because the images are typically formed, uh, projected fairly close to the centres of galaxies. And so you're um, faced with the challenge of separating out the light matter and the dark matter, which is not always easy to do. But gravitational lensing can help you along with that. It can help you along with that, yes. And the, the, the problem is basically that you don't get that many images. You typically get two or four images, and that means that you only probe the potential or you only probe the matter distribution of the lensing galaxy at a few places. Uh, so I understand you're part of the Cosmic Lens All-Sky Survey? Mm -hmm. This was a very large survey which was done by a number of groups, including Jodrell Bank and also groups in the Netherlands and the US. And it lasted for about 10 years, and it was an attempt to find as many gravitational lenses as possible. And the way we did that was to go out to the very large array in New Mexico, and we observed 16,500 uh, background radio sources, And it was essentially an exercise in looking for a needle in a haystack. What we would do is we would look at all these background radio sources which, had, which were chosen to have intrinsically simple structure. So they were chosen to be just point sources, basically. And we looked for any, anything that was not a point source. And of those 16,500, there were 22 gravitational lenses identified. And they were identified by virtue of not being simple point sources. There would typically be two or four images of a background object which just happened to have a foreground galaxy sitting in front of it. Now, it's a needle in a haystack job because, of course, you're, you only get lucky enough to have something along the line of sight once every 600 or once every 800 cases. So it was, it was quite a lot of work. And obviously we're trying to develop ways of doing this sort of thing a, a bit more efficiently. Has the survey been completely finished by now? Yes, it's been completely finished, uh, but there are all sorts of things that we're doing to follow up the survey, which will, will, will continue for quite a while. 
Um, there are also new instruments coming online, for example, LOFAR, eMerlin, and there are various optical telescopes which are going to produce very many more gravitational lenses in the future. And what has the Cosmic Lens All-Sky Survey found? Well, we found, as I say, we found 22 lenses. Um, these can be followed up uh, which has been done both by ourselves and by others for mass distribution, so as to work out uh, how mass masses in galaxies are distributed. They can also be followed up in an attempt to learn about the value of the Hubble constant. This is also an application of gravitational lensing, and it arises in the case where the background object varies. Now, if the background object varies, then this variation travels to you along two different light paths. So let's just suppose that the object suddenly gets brighter, then this brightening travels to you along two different light paths, or more, or more than two, corresponding to the light that travels through the plane of the lensing galaxy and to the observer along two different paths. Now, if you can measure that, let's just say that one of the images brightens and then ten days later the other image brightens, then that means that the difference in the two light, light paths must be 10 light days. And because you know an absolute distance within the system, then provided you know all the angles, if you go back to the ancient Greeks, then you can find out that with those two pieces of information, then you can work out all the distances in the system. And if you compare the distances to the galaxy and the quasar with the redshift, then of course that gives you the Hubble constant. In practice, it isn't as easy as that, but you can have a fairly good attempt at trying to work out the Hubble constant from gravitational lensing systems, provided that the background source is variable. So we, and again others, have uh, uh, spent quite a lot of time trying to do that as well. It sounds to me like there are already many important results from gravitational lenses. Are there any special results expected from gravitational lenses in the near future? Well, there's a number of things that we're trying to do with new instruments that are coming along. As I say, one thing we're trying to do is measure the Hubble constant. Um, some other things that we're trying to do include the detection of central images. Now, I've said before that gravitational lensing systems typically give you two or four images of the background object. That isn't quite true. There is an extra image, which is known as the, known as the odd image for obvious reasons, and that is an image which results from a light path that goes almost through the centre of the lensing galaxy. And that is very interesting because the brightness of that central image tells you about the mass distribution or the lensing potential right at the centre of the lensing galaxy within, um, within 10 or 20 parsecs typically from the centre. And that in turn is very interesting because it lets you probe the distribution of mass right at the centre of a galaxy at typically of redshift 0.5 or something like that. And that is something that we would very much like to be able to do because you have some sort of central concentration of stellar mass and you may have a central black hole. Now the problem at the moment is that these images are very, very faint. There is one that's been detected by a US group in, uh, in, in a lens that they discovered, but no other cases or no other secure cases are known. And with uh, instruments coming along like eMerlin and the extended VLA, we should be able to detect these images, if not routinely, at least 
we stand a much better chance of doing it just because of increased sensitivity. Thank you very much. Neil Jackson there from the University of Manchester, which also played host to the Manchester Microlensing Conference. And, Nick, I think you were organising this, weren't you? Yes, I was involved in helping to organise the Manchester Microlensing Conference. Microlensing is a type of gravitational lensing, which we've just heard about from Dr. Neil Jackson. We managed to catch up with a number of the astronomers who were visiting Manchester for the conference. And the first one was Professor Andy Gould from Ohio State University in the States on the applications of microlensing. Here he is with Roy Smits. I'm sitting with Professor Andrew Gold from Ohio State University, who I believe is an expert on microlensing. Uh, can you perhaps explain the difference between microlensing and macrolensing? Both of these are gravitational lensing, and both occur when uh, light from some distant source is bent by the gravity of a more nearby object. But in uh, macrolensing, the nearby object or nearby object is a galaxy, which might be several hundred billion times the mass of the sun, whereas uh, in microlensing, the mass is just a single star, which would be similar to the mass of the sun. And so the angle that uh, the bending angle is much less. It's a, you know, typically a thousandth of an arc second uh, compared to typically one arc second for macrolensing. And can you tell us about the different applications of microlensing? Well, microlensing started off with just one basic application, which was to look for dark matter. Um, and those were experiments that were conducted beginning about 20 years ago. And they were looking for dark matter in the form of compact lumps of things. So there's two basic ideas on dark matter. One is that it's failed stars, just small little clumps of ordinary matter. And the other was that it was made of some mysterious new fundamental particle that was spread kind of uniformly throughout space. And if it was the lumps of things, then microlensing could detect it because these lumps, even though they were dark, would get in front of some star and magnify it. But if it was continuous matter, it wouldn't have any effect. And the net result of that um, experiment is that the, the continuous matter, what are called WIMPs, weakly interacting massive particles, won out because the microlensing failed to detect substantial amounts of dark matter. But today microlensing is moving on to a lot of other applications, and I'd say the most dramatic application is to search for extrasolar planets. So, so far we've discovered um, only six extrasolar planets compared to few hundred that have been discovered by other methods like the radial velocity or Doppler technique. But we're probing a unique part of parameter space, including the very cold outer parts of solar systems, which are not well attacked by other methods. And we found that probably most stars have a cold Neptune, uh, so similar to our own Neptune, a little bit closer to the star. And that was uh, very unexpected. And we think that in the future we'll be going to be able to detect Earth-mass planets using this technique uh, once we get a little, you know, catch our stride a little bit more. But it has other applications as well. When microlensing magnifies a star, sometimes it can magnify it 200, 500, even 1,000 times. And sometimes these stars are so faint to begin with, we can't really study them before they're lensed. But now after they get lensed, then uh, we can put big telescopes like the Keck telescope and take spectra of them and find out things about the stars that we couldn't do otherwise. Well, that's just a few of the applications, really. Can you perhaps explain in more detail how you use gravitational lenses to detect planets around other stars? Well, this is really quite a frenetic activity. So the microlensing causes, uh, is, it takes the form of microlensing events, where uh, gradually uh, the nearby star becomes more aligned and then less aligned with the more distant star. 
becomes very closely aligned in a handful of cases, then the nearby star becomes highly magnified. And then if the planet, if the nearby star has a planet, and that planet is near one of the images, one of the light rays coming by from the more distant star, then it will further deflect that light and causes an extra little blip in the light curve. So what we do is we, first of all, we search for these very high magnification events, which, as I say, are quite rare. And then when they go off, then we try to mobilize uh, telescopes all over the world to look at them as intensely as possible. Actually, the majority of the telescopes that we're using are small telescopes run by amateurs in just out-of-the-way places because by having a network all around the world, that's how we can catch the event. So we don't really need the giant telescopes that maybe you read about in other places. Just 30-centimeter or 50-centimeter telescopes are quite big enough for us. Were there any special results reported during this conference? Well, there are a lot of exciting results and plus new ideas. So there's people are reporting um, about uh, planets that have been discovered in the last couple of uh, seasons, both the 2006 season and 2007 season. And maybe there's a couple of planets that we feel very confident about and a few more work in progress. So the nature of this conference is not to have uh, very polished work, but just to report things that are developing. It look, really looks like maybe we have a half a dozen more planets, but we'll have to wait till another year of effort before we can really be sure um, of the characteristics of these planets. Thank you very much. There you go, that's Professor Andrew Gould from Ohio State University about microlensing. Then Roy went and spoke with Joachim Vamskans from the Heidelberg University on quasar microlensing. Here's Roy again. I'm standing with Professor Joachim Bamskans from Heidelberg University of Germany. Uh, can you perhaps tell us about quasar microlensing? Yes, quasar microlensing deals with objects that are very far away in the universe. Quasars are very luminous objects that are at the edge of the universe. The centers of quasars are black holes and they accrete matter and during this process they emit very large luminosities. Now, gravitational lensing deals with matter between this very distant object and our telescopes, matter that passes in front of the quasar. This matter can be a galaxy? Indeed, the galaxies uh, that are directly in front of such a quasar manage to produce two or three or four images of the quasar that are separated by a very small angle on the sky. This is sometimes called gravitational lensing or macro-lensing. Each galaxy consists of stars, like our Sun, and if such a star passes directly in front of the quasar, then it can change the apparent brightness of the quasar. That means with our telescopes, we see the quasar fluctuate in brightness. This can happen on a timescale of a few weeks or months. We see the quasar image getting brighter and then fainter again. So microlensing means that you are using galaxies as a lens, but you're using stars that pass in front of quasars, which makes it microlensing. That's correct. And the difference is that a star would also produce two images from a quas of a quasar, but these two images are very, very close together in the sky. So no telescope on Earth is able to distinguish the two images. What we can measure, however, is the combined brightness of the two images. And since this changes with time, due to the fact that the star moves in front of the background quasar, we can monitor with our telescopes the change in brightness. 
And this helps us measure two things. One is we get information on the lensing object, on, on the star, and the other effect is we can study the background quasar in much more detail than we could without this additional magnification effect of the microlenses. Have you observed many quasars in this way? There are about 100 quasars known that are multiply image, that are macro lens, where we see two, three, four images. And uh, we have managed to get data on about 15 or 20 of them in order to study this microlensing effect. However, it's a bit difficult to get data of this kind because in most observatories on Earth, observers go there for three nights or for five nights and get some exposure and then they go back home and analyze their data. Whereas for this kind of uh, science, we need time series. That means we would need one image per quasar ideally every night. And normal modern big telescopes are not uh, made for this purpose. Therefore, uh, some sub-branch of astronomy deals with small telescopes, but they are so-called dedicated telescopes. They are made for one purpose only, and then they can take these images essentially every night. So what telescopes have you used for this project? Well, these are telescopes of order one meter diameter or up to two meter diameters that are uh, yeah, at different locations around the Earth. The most successful one is the so-called Ogle telescope in Chile, but there are other telescopes in South Africa, in Australia. The most important fact is not so much the size of the telescope for our purpose, because these quasars are relatively bright. What is more important is that the local atmospheric conditions are very good. This is what astronomers call the seeing. Every point-like star is smeared out due to the atmosphere. And at poor locations, that means the images are yeah, just very broad. And we need very sharp images. And therefore, the good atmospheric conditions at these sites are very useful for us. Do you have any recent results on this? Well, yes, we do. We uh, saw changes of uh, quasars, bright brightening changes due to microlensing that made the quasars by a brighter by a factor of three or so in a relatively short time of days or weeks. And this helps us get uh, uh, constraints on the size of the quasar. So we could uh, figure out that this uh, disk around the black hole of the quasar is relatively small, smaller than what many other colleagues or astronomers thought in the past. And we hope that we can refine these measurements and get even better results in the next few months and years. Thank you very much. And of course, we all know that doing astronomy in space beats the pants off doing astronomy on Earth. So Roy spoke with Dr. Dave Bennett from Notre Dame University about microlensing from space. I'm with Dr. Dave Bennett from the University of Notre Dame. Can you tell us what you would like to do with microlensing? Well, I have a, um, a proposed uh, mission to, uh, to do a microlensing survey of the galactic bulge from space. And... Uh, the point of this mission is to, um, is to find planets around other stars, and we can do that from the ground. Uh, but if we do it from space, we can do a, a comprehensive survey that would find planets at pretty much all separations, except uh, separations much smaller than 1 AU from their stars, and we're sensitive to, to planets down to about a tenth of an Earth mass. When combined with uh, NASA's Kepler mission, it would provide a comprehensive census of all types of planets and give us a, sort of a complete census of what types of planets there are in the galaxy. What is NASA Kepler mission? 
Uh, the Kepler mission is a mission that's due to launch, I guess, in about a year and a half. And uh, they're looking for small planets uh, by the planet transit technique, um, looking for planets the size of Earth that um, happen to pass in front of their stars and block out some of the light. And they're very sensitive to planets that are in very tight orbits. Um, and that's the one area where uh, microlensing is not sensitive to planets. So there are microlensing experiments which are ground-based. And what are the limitations of those experiments? The ground-based microlensing experiments, um, one of the main difficulties with the microlensing method is that um, the alignment you need between the source star and the lens star is, um, is very rare. And so we need to look in de- as dense stellar fields as possible to have a reasonable chance of, of detecting the event. And so the fields we look in are, are toward the galactic bulge. Uh, but in fact, they're so dense with stars that we can't really resolve the, the main sequence stars that are our prime targets from the ground. And so that means we, when, when lensing manif- magnification is modest, we actually can't get very good photometry on these stars. But of course, they are being lensed, and so sometimes the lensing magnification is, is not modest. And, uh, and that makes them bright enough to, uh, to get um, good measurements from the ground. And so we're able to detect um, even very low-mass planets um, from the ground. But, um, but they do have to be in a special position around the star, typically a few astronomical units, um, in order to, get, to be able to um, detect planets at a wide variety of different separations. We need to go for, from space, where we have a much better angular resolution, and we can get good photometry even when the magnification is low. So aren't there already experiments in space that might be able to do this, or does this require a new kind of telescope? An instrument like the Hubble Space Telescope, if it was looking at you know, looking at the right position at the right time, um, would be able to make such measurements, um, except that um, the Earth would get in the way for you know, 45 minutes out of every 90. And also, um, the events are so rare that we really need to be surveying several square degrees continuously of the bulge, and so the Hubble Space Telescope just, just can't do that because it has you know, lots of other projects to do. So what will the requirements be for a telescope that can do this? So we proposed uh, a 1.1 meter telescope um, in an inclined uh, geosynchronous orbit that can uh, continuously observe uh, the galactic bulge and also continuously send the data down to the ground. We'd like to observe in the near, near infrared uh, between 1 and 1.7 microns because uh, our, our targets are, are, are reddened by the, the dust between us and the galactic bulb, so we get more signal if we observe in infrared. And uh, so it's basically uh, a 1.1-meter telescope with a, a two-thirds of a square degree field of view that continuously observes the, the galactic bulge in infrared. And then there's uh, three months a year where we can observe the bulge and we have uh, guest observer programs. So you want to observe planetary objects near around different stars. Is there anything else that you can do with these microlensing? Yeah, there's a lot of other um, you know, projects that can be attempted. Of course, the planets around the other stars are what, what can be used to justify the funding. So we can study a lot about the you know, distribution of massive objects um, in the galaxies and find things like uh, free-floating black holes, um, which are, are difficult to identify by, by other methods. You would identify those as the lens, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. And there have been several of those found, found actually from the ground, but um, the space-based survey would provide a much better, uh, much better sample of those. Thank you very much. Next interview that Roy managed to take was with Professor Chonggo Han from Chongbok University in Korea on the future of microlensing. 
Professor Chung Ho Han. Can you tell us about the future prospects of microlensing? Uh, this field is uh, not very old, but it has uh, been produced quite a lot of results since early 90s. And this is a field where theory meets you know, observations, experiments, and they are both evolving toward a very, you know, to produce more and more important and more you know, prolific results. Currently, several future projects are you know, planning and uh, they are feasible. I'm very sure this field will expand and you know, grow and grow more and uh, produce more and more scientific results. Can you name some of these experiments? Currently, very recently, uh, Japanese and more uh, Japanese and uh, New Zealand group made a more collaboration. And I myself and my you know, Korean collaborators and some other international collaborators are preparing a big project called Earth Hunter Project. And the other project, even more ambitious, is making a space satellite, doing space observations, and which is called Microlensing Planet Finder Satellites. So they are some of them. Are they similar like the Hubble telescope? Yes, Hubble telescope is a 2.4 meter telescope, but you know the MPF, you know microlensing planet finder telescope is a 1.2, so it's a smaller version of a you know space, Hubble space telescope. You say it's a planet finder. Will be able to find planet around other stars? Pretty much, yeah. If you know the space project is carried out, I think 90% of all planets, you know, human ever ever detected will will be you know, detected by using microlensing method. Um, you mentioned that microlensing is a good place where theory and observations meet each other. Do they agree with each other in microlensing? We, you know, but you know, the prediction and the you know, difference between you know, theoretical prediction and the, the experimental results, they are much smaller than other fields. And uh, later on, you know, kind of a figure, people figured out why the difference was caused. That's why I said the two fields are evolving and that they converge the results. So you, you are positive that theory and observation will converge and they will agree in the future. That's right. That's the way we find, you know, more facts, you know, that we have not expected. Theory predicts are based on what we already know, but results say something different and uh, we found more and more. So that's the way we evolve into more advanced kind of sciences. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now, any research astronomer generally has more than one research interest, and the folk who were at the Manchester Microlensing Conference are no different. Roy managed to speak with Przemek Wojniak on the detection of optical afterglows from gamma-ray bursts, and a research interest of his. I'm standing with Dr. Wojniak from the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. Uh, can you perhaps tell us what you've been working on lately? I'm working for a Raptor collaboration, which is um, a GRB follow-up experiment. Uh, we follow up uh, gamma-ray burst uh, localizations from high-energy satellites on their orbit, uh, and we're trying to catch them before the gamma-ray emission is over. And uh, the game is about uh, detecting an optical counterpart to an intense uh, burst of gamma-ray radiation. So you're trying to observe the optical counterpart after a gamma-ray burst has gone off. Uh, that's right, because um, uh, there is quite a bit of astrophysical information uh, that can be extracted from the existence of the optical counterpart. And such as? Uh, such as uh, precise position of, of the event. The physics of these detections is such that the, the localization is typically not very good. And uh, the optical emission is much more concentrated in the sky, um, so a variable uh, counterpart to, to the burst uh, would be the best uh, way to, to provide the most accurate position. 
So you want to observe an optical so you can have a better position on the sky of the source. Uh, why is that important? So that other uh, larger instruments uh, can, can actually uh, point to the object and, and get uh, precise spectroscopic observations and also multicolor optical observations. And our, our experiment has been uh, quite successful so far. So what has it done so far? Um, we have detected an, a number of, of optical counterparts to, to uh, gamma ray bursts, but uh, within the last two years or so, uh, we also uh, had detections during the gamma ray emission, and, and they are fairly high signal-to-noise uh, detections. Uh, and in particular, we detect uh, so-called prompt optical emission in gamma ray bursts, which originates uh, in the same region as, as the uh, actual uh, gamma ray burst, uh, meaning that rather than looking at glowing ambers of the explosion, uh, we are actually looking at the, at the blast wave uh, propagation itself, uh, so-called internal shocks. Uh, you said you observed optical counterpart during the gamma rays, gamma ray burst. How do you do that? We have robotic telescopes uh, that can slew uh, to any part of the, of the sky and point on an object within uh, five seconds of, of receiving the localization. So these are 100% robotic instruments um, in, in Hemis Mountains of, of New Mexico, um, and they are um, permanently listening for data feeds from, uh, from instruments such as uh, SWIFT satellite in the orbit. And uh, the moment the localization happens, um, the position is, is sent over the network to the robotic telescope, and, and, and the telescope performs observations uh, 100% automatically. Okay, thank you very much. Next interview was with Dr. Vasily Balukarov from Cambridge University on the dwarf companion galaxies of our own Milky Way. I'm standing with Dr. Valisi Bulekarov. Can you tell me about your discovery on Milky Way dwarf galaxies? Sure, we uh, have found a few satellites of our own galaxy, the Milky Way. I think the best way to, to visualize what we have done recently is to imagine our solar system with the sun in the center and uh, a few planets spinning around. The, all the planets haven't been known for thousands of years, so only the brightest ones from early on, I believe. And the, the fainter ones were discovered quite recently, so you had to use a telescope to, to find these fainter ones. And it's the same with our galaxy. The very bright satellites, well, smaller galaxies in essence, that are spinning around the Milky Way were found for a long time. And now we found the much fainter ones. And essentially, before they were 10 or so known, and we've increased the, the sample by a factor of two, found another ten. So these are galaxies that are not too very far, but they're very difficult to observe because they're very faint. Yes, exactly, exactly. They're just much smaller than uh, your typical galaxy. And in fact, almost all of them, we found nine. All of them are but one, are invisible. What I mean is that when you look at the image of this part of the sky, you don't see anything there. You don't see a, you know, a, a galaxy or a ball of stars or some kind of concentration of stars. It's only when you plot the density of uh, stars in that area you will see an enhancement and that tells you that something is there. And that's because they are so fluffy, so small mass for such a big size basically doesn't produce a visible concentration of light. If, if you want to see an object like this, you have to move it far, far away 
So then you will see a concentration of light. So one of these objects, one of these, one of these satellites that is very far, you can actually see it, but the rest is invisible. So you actually detect the single stars rather than the whole galaxy? You start by selecting stars, measuring the light, position, and the color, and then plotting density of the stars. And that's how you discover these things. Yeah. So what do you use to observe these stars? We used the data set that was already available, that was a Sloan Sky Survey. And this Sky Survey is essentially a telescope that uh, scanned the entire sky available from, from that observing site. Most of these images, humans never seen them. Then they were given to a computer. That computer then detected stars and galaxies and measured their fluxes. And that was all stored in a database that is publicly accessible to anyone. So all we did, we just took the database and uh, started so, playing with it. So you used the Sloan Digital Sky Survey to find these dwarf galaxies. Exactly. Thank you very much. This being an international conference, we have many people coming from all over the world, and we managed to speak with Dr. Sohrab Rava from the Sharif University of Technology from Iran about astronomy in Iran. We're standing with Dr. Rawar from Sharif University of Technology from Iran. Can you tell us a little bit about astronomy in Iran? Astronomy has uh, an old tradition in Iran. I mean, since a uh, thousand years ago, we had a, a great astronomer in Iran. That, uh, but uh, in the last two centuries, we had almost uh, nothing. Uh, but again, uh, in uh, about 20 years, since 20 years, astronomy started to grow again in Iran. Is there a specific reason for that? A specific a reason why it started growing the well, last 20 years? Uh, in all the science, uh, it's, uh, like the others, other, other fields of the science, astronomy also started to grow. But, and at the present time, we have not enough astronomers. It has about 50 person. Mm-hmm. But we expect it's, it's growing, the number is growing. We have uh, two observatories small, yes. with small telescopes. But we expect to have a big, uh, big telescope, uh, two-meter telescope, in uh, five or six years. So where are these telescopes located? Uh, one of them is in, in the south, uh, University of Shiraz, and the other one is uh, belongs to the University of Tabriz in the north, northwest. Uh, so you have plans for making a new telescope in Iran? Yes, uh, the, the plan is to have a two-meter telescope in five or six years. It will be an optical telescope? Yes, it's an optical telescope, yes. Uh, what kind of research are people going to do with that? It's not decided yet, but uh, maybe we, we use it for various researches, from the cellular physics to the cosmology and the, and the galaxy physics. So what specific kind of research are astronomers in Iran working at at the moment? We can divide it into two categories of stellar uh, astrophysics and cosmology. In the stellar astrophysics, mainly they are working in variable stars, binary stars. They are doing observation and also in theory. But in the cosmology, the people mainly doing uh, theoretical cosmology. In fact, observation right now, but we use the data also, but mainly working in the theoretical cosmology. Do you find it difficult to travel to different countries these days? Not too much, we should, except the uh, United States. It's difficult to get a visa for the United States, I yes, imagine. Yeah, because we don't have embassy. <laughs> there is no embassy and we have, to, we have to travel outside the country and to get a visa. But for Europe, there is no problem. That's good to hear. Thank you very much. So, great. Thanks, Roy. A fantastic collection of interviews from delegates to the Manchester Microlensing Conference. And I have to say, it's a fantastic field to be working in. 
so much exciting research going on. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, gravitational lensing was actually my thesis topic, so it's good to hear more about that. But let's move on to someone whose field is the entire night sky. It's Ian Morrison to tell us about what to see this month. Well, following a month, that's January, where the skies were rarely clear, certainly in the north of England, let's hope that February is rather better. And it really is one of the best months of the year to start observing the heavens. The skyscape in the south in the evening is purely wonderful. At the centre, you have the constellation of Orion the Hunter. Three stars make up his belt, and below hangs a sword of Orion, where with binoculars you can see a hazy glow. It's the Orion Nebula, or M42. It's, it's a birthplace of stars, and a lovely object to observe with a small telescope. Those three stars act as quite nice pointers. If you move up to the right, you come, first of all, to the cluster of stars called the Hyades that makes up the head of Taurus the Bull. The bright star Aldebaran that we see there is in fact not part of the Hyades cluster but a foreground star. If you carry on in the same direction you come to that little beautiful star cluster the Pleiades. A wonderful object in binoculars or a small telescope. Above the constellation of Orion we have the constellation of Auriga with Capella a yellow star almost overhead. It's part of the sky where the Milky Way passes through, so with binoculars you see quite a rich skyscape, and there are a number of very nice star clusters that you can pick out relatively easily. To the lower left of Auriga, we have the constellation of Gemini, the heavenly twins. It's a very nice cluster, M35, near the foot of one of the twins. Now, this is the area where the planet Mars has been throughout the last few months. It was in Gemini. It moved back into Taurus. That's called retrograde motion because the Earth was sort of travelling around on the inside track and it appeared that Mars was moving backwards in the sky. Well, in fact, on the 1st of February, it actually changed its direction again and it starts moving back through Taurus and then back into Gemini. Below Gemini is a single star, Procyon. It's almost the only bright star in the constellation of Canis Minor. And then below that, down to the left of those three stars of Orion, we have Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, the dog star of Canis Major, the great dog. Below that, with binoculars or a telescope, there's a very sweet little star cluster called M41, well worth looking out for, just a few degrees below Sirius. As the night progresses, Leo the lion is moving up into the southeast, and below Leo you'll see an interloper as well, and that's the planet Saturn, but more of that shortly. Okay, well, I've mentioned a couple of the planets. Let's look at them in a little bit more detail. So let's start uh, with Jupiter, but in fact we can combine that with Venus because they're both in the pre-dawn sky. And in fact, on the 1st of February was the closest conjunction of Venus and Jupiter that we'll have until 2014. Uh, and Venus will be just up and to the left, 0.6 degrees of Jupiter. So they're really very close. Binoculars will be a lovely way to view them, just as the sun is about to rise. In fact, this morning, which is the last day of January, I did in fact pick them up as I, I came into work. 
So look out for Venus and Jupiter. As the month goes by, Jupiter begins to rise earlier than the Sun, so you see it more easily. But conversely, Venus is moving in the other direction and becomes less easy to see. However, it is still worth looking out for because from February the 23rd onwards, for several weeks in fact, Venus and Mercury are very, very close. And on February the 23rd, they're only about one degree apart. Now, they won't be high above the horizon, but if you do pick up Venus, use binoculars, you will see Mercury. And I suspect many people have never actually seen Mercury. So from around the 23rd of February, a very good chance to see Mercury. Well, I mentioned Saturn a little bit earlier. Um, it's in the constellation of Leo the Lion, just below the body of the Lion, and about seven degrees down to the lower left of the bright star Regulus. It's not quite as bright as it usually is, because the rings of Saturn, which are inclined to the ecliptic, are actually getting, from our point of view, at a narrower and narrower angle. And in fact, next year, in 2009, they will disappear for a while when they're edge on. So I think the angle is now only about 5 to 8 degrees, and so they don't reflect as much light, and perhaps Saturn isn't quite as beautiful an object to see as it sometimes is. But it's still very, very worth seeing, and as the next couple of months progress, Leo rises in the sky earlier, and you'll have a better chance to see um, Saturn as well. Well, that just leaves the planet Mars. Now, in December, Mars was at opposition. In fact, on the 18th of December, it came as close to the Earth as it gets or as it got on this particular apparition. So it's now moving further away. It's in the constellation of Taurus, moving gently towards Gemini. And I saw it last night, actually, it was clear. It really is very high in the sky. So although the angular size is now only about 12 arc seconds, down from a best of about 15, because it's high in the sky, there's a lot less atmosphere to see it through, and the views with a small telescope can in fact be very, very good, perhaps even better than when Mars was 25 arc seconds across when we saw it back in 2003. So there's a lot to see, and there's one fine little bit of icing on the cake. Last year, we had a, a wonderful eclipse of the moon. This year, we have another one, not quite so well-timed, Last year's was in the evening, but this year's in the early morning. But if you're prepared to get up early on February the 21st, starting in fact at 35 minutes past midnight, the moon will actually first go into the penumbra of the earth and then into the shadow, the full shadow, the umbra, reaching the umbra and fully within the umbra by about 3 o'clock, one minute past 3. The midpoint of the eclipse is at 3.26, and it starts coming out of the umbra, the full shadow, at 3.52. We see the total eclipse from the United Kingdom in the early hours of the morning. Now, of course, if you're in the United States of America, things are a little bit different, and you'll be able to watch the eclipse, not all of it, I might say, uh, as darkness falls and uh, later in the middle of the night. Now, I have to say that the passage of the moon is rather close to one side of the umbra. It's not right at the centre. And that means one side, I think, of the moon won't appear all that dark. We should see a lovely reddish-brown colour, perhaps even a reddy-orange colour, for the part that's furthest into the shadow, but maybe a little bit whiter 
near the other side. Why do we see it at all? Very simply because if you were at the moon and you looked at the Earth, although the sun's behind the Earth, the Earth wouldn't totally disappear. Sunlight can actually work its way round through the atmosphere. Now, as we see, the sun is red when it's low on the horizon. So the light that actually comes through the atmosphere has had the blue light scattered out and is predominantly red. So that red light reaches the moon, and that's why we see the moon with this sort of reddish colour. The colour that we see of the moon depends a lot upon the amount of dust in the atmosphere. After a major eruption from a volcano like Mount St Helens some years ago. There's a lot of dust in the atmosphere. Very little light passes through it, and in fact, the moon almost disappears—a very dull grey colour. But at the moment, we haven't had any major volcanoes for some time. The atmosphere is relatively clear. Last year, it was a lovely browny red colour. Let's hope for an equally good view of the moon this February the twenty-first. I do hope it's clear, so you can have a look. Thanks, Ian. Now you may have heard some some noise in the background during the recording of this podcast, and that's because Jodlebank Centre for Astrophysics has recently been joined by the Square Kilometre Array International Project Office, which have joined us, and they've finally moved into their offices, which we are currently squatting in. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're joined by Professor Richard Scalizzi, who's director of the SKA Program Development Office. So welcome to the podcast, Richard. You've been on before. Yes, I have. A year or so ago, I think.、Yeah. So can you just tell us an update of what's happened so far? Well, we're、uh, we're about to enter a very、uh, important phase of the whole project, where we've got money from Brussels to、uh, to actually de- develop the what we call system design for the whole telescope over the next four years.、Uh, at the end of which, so we're talking about early 2012,、uh, we want to put in a proposal for construction of the telescope. So it's actually not all that far off, is our hope. In the next four years, we'll be actually building something, maybe here, maybe one of the other locations in Europe,、uh, what we call a, a basic verification system. So we're actually putting hardware together. Yeah. Okay. So this verification system is going to be like a, a small, a small version of the S, the full SKA. It'll it may be a, a few dishes, one or two dishes, and、uh, and one of these aperture arrays or something, well, something like that, to just check out the details of the design. How many people will be based here at Manchester working on the SKA development team?、Uh, probably、uh, of the order of twenty when we're in, in, in a year or two's time. We're, so we're, we'll first appoint the senior engineers, and they'll spend the first year、uh, working up,、uh, working from our specifications now to、uh, conceptual design, and then we go into more detailed design work. So that'll the as we build out in the, into the detailed design work, we'll appoint other engineers. And technicians, so it'll it'll end up being about twenty altogether. And has a site been chosen yet、uh, between South Africa and Australia? No, it hasn't, and it'll stay、uh, undecided until late in the, this four-year period because it's bound up with the decisions on funding and who who pays what around the world. Well, thank you for talking to us on the Jodcast. Okay, okay thank, thank you. you. Now, just before we go, the Jodcast is on tour. You can find us at Astrofest, and Stuart's got all the details. We'll be at Astronomy Now's European Astrofest 2008 on February the 8th and 9th at Kensington Town Hall in London. So if you happen to be going to Astrofest, please come and find us and say hello. We'll be in the small hall at the astronomy.ac.uk stand. So come and say hello.
Well, I'm afraid that brings this issue of the Judcast to an end. Thanks to all our interviewees and everyone who has sent us feedback. Of course, please continue to do that via the website at www.judcast.net. Send us an email, send us a postcard, write on the Facebook wall, wherever. Just send us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. The intro-outro voices were provided by Laura Post, Dave McIver, and Rick Rhodes, and no attempt has been made to supersede or infringe any existing copyright relating to Titanic. So, until mid-month, we wish you all the best. Goodbye. Bye. Bye, everyone. This is crazy. I know. It doesn't make any sense. That's why I trust it. Where to, miss? To the stars. In here, then.